welcome me amigo and me amiga. I think oh, that's right. Hablo en español. Hola, ¿cómo están? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so, so what what's going on? Let's do a quick check in. Uh, H, we'll start with you. What's happening? So, um, what's happening? Nothing much. Just you know, trying to keep my head above water, scratching and and surviving. Uh, you know. I was talking to somebody earlier today, and I was telling them how I often look at obstacles as opportunities. Actually, I was talking to you, Doc, and how there had been a couple of obstacles that had been thrown in my way. And I've always been the kind of person who looked at them and said, okay, so where's the opportunity? Like, what do I need to know? What can I learn from this moment? How can I be innovative in this thing to solve this new problem? I never looked at it as though it was a blockade to, like, stop me. I always looked at it as an opportunity to help me get around it. So there have been a couple of, of opportunities that have come my way in the past couple of days. So I'm, I'm thinking outside of the box. I'm trying to be creative. I'm asking for help when I need it and leaning into the wisdom of others, which I think a lot of leaders forget to do, right? They think they get some position or some role and that they then are beyond asking for help, beyond asking for wisdom, beyond identifying when something didn't go well. So I'm I'm good because of the way I'm approaching this as a new opportunity to solve a problem. How you yeah, doing? I, I think I think we need to stick there, Doc, before we get to you oh. uh, and and kind of and talk about that, right? And yeah. so I was I was talking to somebody that I'm commun- in community with today, and I, I I think my response was similar to yours. Age, I'm like, yeah, I'm just you know I'm I'm treading water or whatever, right? And so you know the person that I was speaking to, his response was. Man, I don't want to be in a position where I'm treading water. I want to be in a position where I'm backstroking, breaststroking, like I'm, I'm like, you know, in the in the, in a position to where I'm comfortable. I'm not really, you know, trying to, you know, tread tread water, right? And so it kind of makes me think about what you just said, H, about you know, just the level of humility that it takes in order to be a really good leader. And a lot of us come into this work because we're conditioned to not ask for help because asking for help is a sign of weakness. That's right. Yeah. And um and and it shows in terms of like the longevity that we have in certain posts that in certain positions that we get. And so, I mean, if you're willing to ask for help, then I think that that that, that lengthens your stay in whatever field you're in. It does, but it also reminds me like where did we come up with that baloney? Right. Like when I taught, we even we were so (laughs) programmed to see what we did as a community of learning that we always just say, ask three before me. We never looked at help or assistance or having something repeated or needing additional time as something that was a negative. So where do we get in our minds? Like at what point does it shift when we say, well, you're beyond asking for help. You, You have this role you shouldn't like. I think. I think that's something that we got to like name and discard because asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of self-awareness. It's a sign of trust. It's a sign of humility and the commitment to learn. And it also makes you a better leader. Like I've never seen anybody who asked for help or who tried harder or to to thought about how to solve a problem a different way who was not successful, like who was someone who you didn't want to have on your team. Do you really want, I mean, backstroking is fun, but at some point you got to turn around, right? You don't backstroke in and backstroke out. At some point there's a pivot, there's a shift. 
So even when it's easy and good, that's great, but there is something to be learned from from those struggles. And we have to see obstacles as opportunities. Like what is the thing that could be here that I don't see yet? And how can I help myself look at the, the possibilities instead of the problem? Um, mm, yeah. Doc, how you doing, man? You looking crisp. Man, crisp. Look, I got, uh, got my new hoodie on. Uh, I'm going to send one to Reef. Uh, Why? And the new pair of sneakers. Um, you know, it's been a struggle because uh, when I came back um, from traveling to San Jose, California, found out our oldest son had COVID. And uh, it was the weekend of uh, one of their big basketball tournaments. And he was devastated. Like he, because he couldn't play, wasn't feeling well. And, um, you know, and then I'm looking around at schools. Uh, his school had nine cases. They sent home a letter of email today. Uh, so I've just been reflective about how I can be helpful to him, be a better parent, um, and uh, just really think about, um, you know, how to be better for, for him as he heads into middle school, um, the days where I'm looking at him and, uh, you know, his broke jump shot and thinking of it as a progressing jump shot mm -hmm. and uh, not being like, dog, like you were standing right at the rim and you missed, right? And like, <laughs> what are you doing, right? Like realizing like he's in fifth grade and this is his first time playing super competitive basketball. Um, whereas, you know, I grew up in the police athletic league from the age of eight playing competitive. It just was a different day and time, you know. Yeah, but where, you were still trash. No, bro. <laughs> No, Bro, you already you already admit you already admitted that you were the person that came out to get five fouls. So no, knock it off. Now, now that was basketball, baseball, right. and football. Absolutely not. Westside Cubs, best best youth sports program in the city of Detroit, was not oh, trash. We played for boy. we played to represent the state of Michigan in the Little League World Series. But that I digress. Uh, Listen, so so basketball. No I was the dude that came out, and uh, you needed uh, if you needed a Rick Mahorn, Charles Oakley. Guy, I was that football player that was just like, I got five, six fouls. Like, I'm going to get all of them. Bro, I might I get them all in by hated, half. hated playing playing basketball with football players. Yeah, right? It's, like, it's just, it just make, because it makes no we sense. And they come physical. out to try to hurt you. We were physical. Oh, we were okay. Physical. Okay. Yeah, we no, it's, it's the difference between being physical and somebody like legit coming to try to hurt you. We were physical. They, they, you know, the basketball players didn't like, uh, didn't like, uh, playing with us uh although my closest friend was a, a basketball player one of my closest friends and he was the star of our high school team and uh he used to always say like man the only reason you on the team is when they need the files at the end of the game or at a particular moment the coach gonna put you in and I used to say like I'm cool with that because I used to enjoy the camaraderie of the basketball team. And I used to always say that I always felt like there was greater camaraderie on a basketball team because it was a smaller group of players. Yeah. Whereas football teams, like it was a lot of guys and you were cool with generally as a receiver, I was cool with the quarterback. I was cool with my position players, the linemen, they were nasty. And like, you know, they were just kind of loud. Uh, so I ain't really fool with them. Uh, so I, I think, you know, what I'm realizing is all those experiences have informed how I'm trying to be supportive of uh, John um, and, you know, just being helpful because uh, he's missing the week before the last week of school. He'll yeah. go back to school on Thursday. 
right? Mm-hmm. And he's had a good school year, um, although this whole SOL thing, um, I'm still struggling and in a perpetual war with Fairfax County Public Schools. I know they're watching. Um, I might have to do an op-ed about they got they got kids doing SOLs to measure what? Like, what are they comparing it to? Like, y'all ain't did SOLs the last two years. Like, what is it going to tell you? Like, yeah. but anyway, I won't get off. Yeah, so, so yeah, funny you should mention that, right? Because I, I was I was talking to a prominent school leader today. I won't say any names, but she's amazing. And so we were we were talking about like progress monitoring, right? And I'm like, well. What the hell? Like, when when's the last time you progress monitor, right? And so she's like, I progress monitor one time a year. And I was like, Well, if you progress monitor one time a year, then progress monitor. Exactly. I was like, Well, if you progress monitor one time a year, then that means that if you start at the beginning, then you and you progress monitor at the end, then you could measure the growth. And so then I guess the conversation turned into like, if you do it every year, then you can measure it by year growth or whatever. So I, I guess. In a sense, you could still do it that way? No. Progress monitoring should take place every four to six weeks, Mm -hmm. um, depending on where you are. Typically, I chose students who were on red were progress monitored every four to Mm -hmm. six weeks, and those who were on yellow was like every eight cents. Because you're monitoring the progress. You don't assume that you'll go from one score to the other without any notice. So once a year is is an assessment. They're looking at growth over the year, from year to year. But that's yeah. not progress. Right. I think you're looking for a principal. I think. I think. No. <laughs> no. 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 I can't. I can't deal with H and her weekends and and, and just. I need to. Have, <laughs> I need to have access. To, I need to have no, access. When I I didn't really maybe this is me flipping it because for six like when yeah I never really took vacations when I was principal because you can't. There's always this worry, like, you know, what's going to happen. Either yeah. we would have to, like, have to go to Leadership Academy or be out of the building. When I was doing my program at Penn and I would have to leave on a Friday and my custodian, shout out to Mr. Israel, would drop me to the train station so I could go, I would still yeah, be still, like... Drop you to the train station? Yeah, because they, they, it, it was their way of supporting me because That's our classes at Penn started at like three and so i would go to school and like take the 11 30 train and get there just in enough time and you can't like leave and parking and stuff and so it when we Mm. backtracking when we did the ceremony we got to give a certificate of support to people who had supported us throughout and i was definitely thinking about my school community and how they would say do you need anything can we help we're going to take care of duty for you. Who can drop you off? Did you bring your stuff? Don't forget your thing. Here's your article. It was on the on, on the copy machine. Like and, and so again, I think what I hear Doc and you talking about, whether it's basketball, football, fraternities, sororities, there is the importance of community That's and right. how we show up and how we're able to do the things we do. We are all standing on the back of somebody, on mm. the shoulders of someone who tried mm. to make something better so that we could do it too. And so I think, you know, that's why it's always great to be in community with us because we get to have these conversations and like call out folks by name, call mm. out programs, call out people who have cared for, nurtured, inspired, and pushed us and like held us accountable too, right? Like mm. who called us out on our BS. Mm. Um, and so I think that's, that's what's one of the things that makes this time together really important because I get to name that, publicly because it, it's worthy it's worthy of that acknowledgement 
And that's what's up. And also, we get to call out people that ain't doing their jobs, and we get to call. <laughs> we're, calling you know, them in. we're calling them in and inviting them in. That's right. Yeah. Because you know, Doc, Doc, Doc is messy, so. I'll never hear Doc is messy. What, 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 what is going on today? I did not. I, 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 I was a participant in the audience of eight black hands this weekend. Yeah, set this up, set this up nice. <laughs> so, so I normally enjoy the hands on podcasts, like because of the time of night and like with the kid, just like you know basketball on. But yesterday, I happened to catch the hands live, right? And I usually do it on YouTube because I like to see the chat, and I just you know I just love to support them brothers, right? Um, and you know, and I think that, uh. They were t- I don't even remember what they were talking about, but somehow class size matter came up. <laughs> this class size matter came up. I don't even know how it came up. And this person in the chat was like, there's no research that suggests that class size and uh, student performance matter. Something to that effect. And I'm like, are you crazy? Like, what? Man, y'all already know I'm going into nuance on that one. Like, first of all, you can't possibly... <laughs> The research on class size mattering goes back to the late 70s. Like there were massive quasi-experimental design studies. There was a massive study in Tennessee that demonstrated that class size matters, but there are other variables that are important to consider when you unpack that. And so that's where I was just like, bro, like you really just going to put it out there. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. So let's let's unpack this, right? Because like, <laughs> but I wasn't messy. This is this is this is going to be a, a really interesting conversation, right? And so when when does class size matter, and who does it matter for, right? Because when you think about just like the distribution of resources, right? Um, there's certain time, there's certain things that happen in suburban communities or in communities in which they can raise their own funding uh, using income sure. taxes and with no tax caps or whatever, right? To where they can raise this funding in order to, to, to get the type of staffing that they need in order to make sure that, you know, sure. that class sizes are at, in, a, in a range that's, that's, that's palatable for, for them, right? But then in the inner city, you're not able to do that, right? Um, sure. And so, and, but then a lot of times in the inner city, you get the, the teachers that are the least polished, the least able to handle high class sizes, right? And those are the ones that are that that are uh, among black and brown students. And so, where does it matter? Where is it a class size problem in the suburbs where you guys live? Like, what what's going on? So here's the thing, right? One, people have to do an analysis to really think about what is the research that we're reading to understand the impact and effect on class size. One of the things that we understand is that in the research, it's not just about achievement. It's about a level of engagement. Uh, Shout out to my homie, uh, uh, Chad, um, in Atlanta. But uh, the, the thing is that class size impacts a sense of belonging. It impacts... Uh, the ways in which uh, young people feel engaged. So it absolutely matters everywhere, in particular for young people 
that operate at the margins due to systemic racism and the ways in which white supremacy operates. The argument around funding and policy is different than academic achievement Mm -hmm. and a sense of belonging. And that's why I say to folks, it depends on the study that that you're uh, reading. And y'all know, y'all know, as soon as this jumped off, I was like, I I just wanted to get into the chat with 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 homie and be like, bro, you need to go all the way back to 1979 when they first started doing massive studies of this. I'm not talking like qualitative studies of five teachers and their thoughts on class size. And those studies are important, right? I'm not suggesting. Yeah, please don't, please don't, please don't do that qual versus quant thing. No, that's not, that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm suggesting. Okay. But but in this case, if you're going to make a systemic argument about how to level set class size in a big school and a large school system, whatever it is, in a system, you need to go to massive data sets to, to look for where it matters most. Where it matters most is in the early grades. Mm-hmm. That's a statistical fact. And for me, the, the issue is like, this can't be one of convenience and saying, well, you're paid to teach 28 kids, 38 kids, or 48 kids. Mm-hmm. Because it also takes into account, we now see more young people who have IEPs mainstreamed into regular education classrooms. Mm-hmm. We can't possibly put those young people in classes with 28 kids. If they have a, uh, uh, some sort of uh, challenge with uh, their sensory issues around hearing and noises and things like that, we're setting them up for failure. And for black kids, we're setting them up to go right into uh, the prison industrial complex because we then create schools, and I won't name the schools that operate this way, but we have schools that operate at the nexus of schools and prisons where schools operate like prisons, right? And when you do that, we we reproduce the same things we want to solve for. So yes, hey, uh, class size matter. Chad, where you at? We're making that t-shirt because that, that was just a, a that was just an example of him being messy. Like he I did not I name the, the network or that whatever. Has four letters. But, like that's just that's just messiness. I will <laughs> not talk about how they give rental shirts to children. Like oh, they're God. slaves. Oh God! All I right. won't talk about that, but oh. I will just name that. Like, oh, there needs awful. to be an apology for this type of obsession that is a byproduct of the culture of ed reform. So again, right? Not gonna let you come for ed reform at all, right? Like some people, people do can't even reform. tell me what ed reform is. Black people been trying to fix schools forever. What is ed reform? So. I don't know what their version of ed reform is. <laughs> I only know what I live and breathe every day in terms of what I bring to my school community. And that's all that I can speak for. I can't speak for the things that other people do that 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 uh, are built on white supremacy constructs. I can only talk about the things that I do to make sure that I'm empowering the families that I need to empower that look oh. like me. And so that's where I'm at. Hey, <laughs> so I think a few things, right? So I think we often hear small and independent and private schools tote that they can have a small class size um, because there is some assumption we're making that if you have a small class size, better teaching is happening. And so I have seen people in small classes that still aren't teaching well, right? Um, mm, I name think it. Amazing 
and because the size is really about the engagement. Are you prepared? Is mm -hmm. there differentiation? Are there strong systems and structures, whether you have five kids or 15 kids or 25 kids or 35 kids, right? So I think we have to, it's easier to assume that a small class means there's high quality teaching and learning because it doesn't look yeah, like no. it's all, right? When we think even about large classes, often the most important times when we're looking at teachers is that small group instruction, right? How are they working with five or six kids? How are they engaging the other 15 in work that matters and not just busy work? So that mm. even if there's a class of 15, 25, 30, it feels like young people are able to get the engagement on a level that they need in order to be successful. I think a part of our challenge is we keep class size and it's like assumption that there has to be like 25 to one in our funding basis or in our ratios or the ways we look at students is just another example of the ways that we keep trying to be innovative and evolve what schools can look like holding on to some old archaic things, right? Like 25 kids in a class with one adult in the front, grades that are like A, B, Cs, and Ds, a calendar that goes from September to June. Like these are things that we're holding on to <laughs> that may not necessarily be giving us Absolutely. the kind of results that we really want to see for children. I've had amazing teachers who I would have loved to teach every third grader that I had, which is why we thought about how can we departmentalize, right? I got a high quality math, black male teacher, Mr. Martin Spinner, who's high quality, highly effective and amazing. I want every third grade child to have him. So mm -hmm. I might think, no, am I gonna put him with 62 kids? Absolutely not. But can I be thoughtful about how my schedule is? How we transition, how we set up our master schedule, how we set up specials, how we use other warm bodies in the building so that all students can get the best high quality experience for sure. I think your point about young people and teachers who are new and cutting their teeth, who often end up in urban schools, in schools that are low performance, but not because they necessarily want to go there, but the reality yeah, is. Yeah, low performance is subjective. True, but those are the schools that have often the highest turnover, and so they have the more opportunities to hire new teachers, not because the students don't do anything, but because that's where they lose people at, right? It's, it's yeah. culture issues, it's, it's staffing issues, it, 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 it's being able to retain hey, high-quality so folks. Even, even if everything was perfect in those schools, you would still have high turnover in those schools. Why? Because ultimately they don't want to teach in those schools. They want to teach in the communities in which their, their, their kids are in school. And those are not the same communities that they're working in. Let's sure, name but the, that's true. But the allure of like small class size is not thinking about those other parts of the ecosystem that are going to impact whether or not a teacher stays and is able to do well. And I think we give too much credit to schools because we think that they have, because they say we have small class sizes, but young people are, are not engaged. You can have a small class right. size and the yeah. teachers still don't know your family and still don't know where you are. Still don't know yeah. you but are. It's because, it's, that's because they don't care about you. Right. But what I'm saying is they're not going to care whether they're 25 kids or whether they're 42 kids. If you don't care, you shouldn't be in of the course. classroom, period. And you unfortunately, those who don't care are often put in their place. What's that saying? The ones who deserve you, the, who need you the most often deserve you the least. Like, you know how it's easy to be kind to a kid who is like doing everything, but the one who's like who needs an additional layer of support is harder to, to show up for them. 
And so what happens is we have these people who are serving in the places where the need is the greatest, but their skill set isn't the strongest. And I want folks, I want us to think about class size, not necessarily for teachers, but for parents, because parents hear small class size and think that means you'll know my kid and do right by them, that you'll be able to help address them, even if they are above or below grade level. Too often we even think about that from a deficit mindset. Oh, what happens to the four kids who like don't know how to do it? Well, what happens to the six kids who have already done it and how are they being engaged? And what so, are we doing? How are we using that in order to make a rich, robust instructional time? Yeah. So I think I think you raised some some uh, some interesting points that we we need to unpack. Right. The first thing is uh, you talked about grades uh, A to F, right? And so let's kind of unpack what standards based grading would look like, right? And how much more beneficial that would be to students than the base based on a system of arbitrarily uh, giving a kid. Uh, an A to F because what you'll see is this right you'll see a lot of kids that behave really well that fly under the radar and end up passing because they didn't give that teacher any problem yet when they get to 12th grade they can't read can't fill out a job application but they behave really well right and so that kid has been failed by that system for 13 years and nobody ever talks about what what's next for 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 that kid right because I honestly think that it's criminal for a kid to get to the 12th grade and not have the ability to one, be able to go into a career that's sustaining in terms of like them obtaining a job, doesn't have to be college, right? But like them at least obtaining a job to where they can support themselves and put themselves in positions to be good citizens, right? And I feel like we are setting our kids up to not be successful. Um, What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I mean, I agree, right? I think it's it's the A to F scale, it's the schedule, it's the, you know, it, it even can be how we put young people in grades, right? Like, I think there are opportunities that we could mix young people based yeah. on the mastery of a particular skill. There's an opportunity where we can yeah. think about where we can use mentors and buddies in order to help develop a skill, right? If I have a fourth grader who's reading on a second grade level and a second grader who's reading on a fourth grade level, and these two young people want to come together to read a book and discuss it and can engage in the in the content in a way that is stimulating and appropriate for both of them, then we need more of that. But again, we keep holding on to these systems. Like we think school's supposed to get an A and an F, so that's how schools are. You think a school's not supposed to have more than this many kids and go this long or include these kids with these kids. And 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 that's our problem. We keep talking about ed reform and ways that we can be innovative, but when push comes to shove, we are so married to these traditional ways and these archaic ideas about what school is supposed to look like and it's not meeting our need and the young people and the people who are suffering the most because of that are those who are on the fringes those who are situated furthest from opportunity those who are in communities where they're at schools and in their home lives in the community that have the most upheaval the most disruption and the less consistency and then we're mad when young people come out can't do nothing yeah well, so I'm going to tout what we do at the Riverhead Charter School real quick, right? Because we have a program. It's called, Walk to Read. It's, called, it's, called, it's, it's called Walk to Read. And so I know about this program, one, because I helped design it, right? And so what happens is that if you will have a first grader who is reading above grade level, so if he's reading on a third grade level, right, we have our schedule positioned in a way in which that kid can now be reading in a reading class with the third graders right so like he's not 
he or she is not stuck in a first grade class board, right? So now these kids are being challenged at, at, at their level as opposed to, you know, just st- sitting there and just wiggling their fingers, right? So like, I, I think that when you think outside of the box in terms of how you can challenge kids, then you get more bang for your buck in terms of, you know, what, what, what output you get from them. Also, uh, when we think about teaching in general, right, like teachers and I'm going to name this because I did it when I was in a classroom. A lot of us just teach to the middle, right? We don't necessarily differentiate to the point where we're teaching to the highs and we're teaching to the lows, right? Because the majority of our students are in the middle. And so when you get a really good teacher, and that's why like, I'm, I'm hesitant when I'm like, oh, this teacher is highly effective or oh, this teacher is this or this teacher is that. Because like, I need to see some things in order for me to put those types of labels on teachers right so if i see if i walk into your classroom do a classroom observation and you're teaching to the highs you're teaching to the lows and you're moving everybody in your class to me that rings highly effective right and so that's my energy for that doc jump in here what are your thoughts yeah i mean so i think since i was being messy as (laughs) um I, I, I hear y'all on, on that and I, I, I'll leave that to y'all to 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 uh, work on as I trust y'all as school leaders. Um, I think from a research perspective, part of my beef with this person was they said no research supports that. And like, that's just absolutely not true, right? I think as a research geek and a trained social scientist, if we can use a meta-analysis right, to understand, which is a statistical method that summarizes results of a variety of studies, it allows us to understand results over time. And that's the method that many people have used to understand how class size either is effective or not effective. What are the various, the variables, right? And I think for me, the point of the matter, at least my frustration with the the comment on the chat yes, uh, Sunday, it's like folks just hop out there and lay these claims out. And it's like, no, like, no, like that's that's not 100% <laughs> accurate because there's nuance to it that y'all are pointing out, which is where I think having a robust conversation between uh, brilliant school leaders and practitioners and researchers and academics who have also been in schools. I think that's the caveat. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there are some rare exceptions, right? Like I think the work of Raj Chetty as an example, who's an economist and has never been a teacher. Right. I think a lot of his work is very relevant and germane to how we understand education systems. So there, there are some rare uh, exceptions. And, and I think that for me was, was triggering because I just think there are too many moments where people are allowed to do that and say, well, no one said X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, all right, like that's not exactly true. Um, and I think, you know, to, um, th- th- it's just important to understand the ways in which various units of analysis and the ways in which research is actually done can actually help us help our kids. And And I just think, you know, in my experience, uh, I won't go back down my messy rabbit hole of ed reform. I just think that there are too many folks in ed reform, I'll just say it, that don't understand the research, nor do they actually understand schools 
because they haven't spent enough time in schools, right? And we need to be able to hold folks accountable because again, and y'all have heard me say this, if I need a superintendent to run a successful school and a network of schools, I'm calling Ray. If I need someone to help me understand how to run a school and engage in academics and family engagement, I'm calling uh, uh, H, right? Like I, I don't, if someone were like, well, yeah, we want you to come and work with principals. Like, nah, man, like that ain't my, that, that's, <laughs> That ain't my mission, you know, like I just that's just not my thing. And I just think being honest with ourselves when we're in community, as opposed to acting like we're a superhero and can solve mm. all problems, mm. that helps our children much better than, you know, you got people that are like, oh, Simmons, let me tell you how we can fund a school and have class size not matter. I mean, I mean, all right, I hear you, but here's what the research says. What I know yeah. is how to do the research and I can hand it to you and say, this is what a collection of studies say. You all can do what you want with it. Uh, so I think for me, it was a bit triggering um, because I think it's misleading. And a lot of people in education who use that rhetoric, they sidestep the research and go with their gut and yes, your gut may get you lucky once a day because the clock is right twice a day. That's right. Hmm. And and I, it just, I saw the, the comment about IEPs and 30% of students. I remember having a student who was in a self-contained BES class, a fifth grader, and he was fantastic at math, like hmm. well beyond what the other young people in that class were doing. And so we were able to have them move to the fifth grade class with his one-on-one aid during their general math block, right? Because whether or not a student, I think we have to also think about class size and structures and the ways that we are meeting all kinds of kids wherever they are. And thinking about the importance around how we can better understand data and their progress and have a good understanding of standards so that we can meet children both where they are and be keep laser focused on where they need to be. I think sometimes, especially when our young people come in below grade level or have an IEP or are struggling, we get so focused on the gap that we forget to look at the things that they are doing well and find a way to leverage that skill in order to build something else up. And so whether the student has an IEP, comes in speaking English as a second language, we got to be thoughtful about the ways they are engaging with the content, how we are looking at our schedule, and how we are able to give them the support that they need so that they don't just become somebody in a box. If I looked at this young man and said, oh, he's got an IEP, he's not doing good at math, he should just stay in this room, it, it, that was a small class that didn't have more than 10 people and had three adults in a room. So they're both is around content and engagement and around being able to identify truly where people are so that we can and have it. I mean, we got to make sure that our teachers understand content. Like that's first and foremost. I don't care if you have five kids or 50 kids. If you don't understand content, if you don't understand relationships, if you don't know how to engage students, then it doesn't even matter. So, so, so uh, a trigger word that you just said for me, right? Uh, well, actually two, but I'll start with the first one and then go into the second one, right? So you just said something about relationships, right? And so you'll hear you'll hear folks that'll be like, oh, relationships don't matter, right? I don't care if a kid likes me. Uh, you know, I, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here for a kid. People to say like that? Me. 
Yeah, people say that all the time. I'm not here for I'm not here to be liked, right? I'm here to teach, right? And so I get it. Yeah. You know, but like it, it depends on what students you're teaching, right? Because if you're teaching uh in our communities, our, our our students have to build relationships with you, they have to trust you, right? Because of all of the distrust that we've had in this country between whites, blacks, uh Latinx communities or whatever. So like our teachers have to trust you, so relationships do matter. And so if you're not committed to building relationships with our students, students in the inner city, also, you know, uh, black students in the suburbs, black students in rural areas, right? Like if you're not committed to building relationships with our students, then don't teach our students, right? And so we are telling you what we need. Our students are telling you what they need. And if you can't own that and rise to the occasion, then you don't need to be teaching them, right? I feel like a lot of people jump into this profession now and it's not a profession that's revered anymore because people look at it like it's just a job, right? It's no longer a calling for a lot of people. It used to be a calling for people. Like people were called to teach because they understood the responsibilities that it was going to take in order for you to be a successful teacher. Now it's something different, right? Um, and that's not to say that it wasn't always something different, but I feel like um, now it's more transparent in terms of like you being able to see it. And now, you know, with us being in this work, it's really easy to see who is there for kids and who is there for themselves, right? And it's ah, it's painful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dr. Cornell West tells us that we can't serve people that we don't love. And exactly. I always extend it and say, you can't love people that you don't know. And so I don't care if you're talking about black teachers in black communities, white teachers in white communities. I, I don't care who you are. If you cannot, if you don't know the people, then you cannot love the people. And if you do not love the people, you cannot serve the people. And teaching is about service. It's about sacrifice and service. It's about vision. It's about consistency. People, your point about relationships is they use the word relationship and they think that that means you got to like me and love me. Some of the young people who I was the hardest on, some of the young people who gave me the most hell are students and families I had strong relationships with. Just because we never, that's another one of those words that we use the wrong way. We think relationships mean that I like you all the time and you like me all the time. That's not true. Relationships means that we can hold one another accountable, that we can celebrate each other, that we can be consistent, that we can be truthful, that we can ask for support, that we can ask for permission, that we can ask for advice, and that we can create an environment where trust is the root of what we do. If, if my students and teachers and communities don't trust me when I tell them we're getting ready to do this thing, nobody's going to make a move. So people who talk about that, they're not talking about relationships. They're talking about power. They're talking about mm-hmm. ego. And I don't care if you like me. I got mine. You just got to get yours. You are a fool and you shouldn't be serving. And we never let people use that kind of negative deficit-based language in other positions. We never know yeah. a doctor doesn't yeah. say, well, I got my degree. If I, I know how to eat right. If you don't eat right, I guess you're going to die. Like the thought that yeah. we don't do that. So why do we think Listen, that's okay to do in education? You, yeah. Well, you try to... You try to you try to do that shit on at, at, on a on a college level, right? You you say you you let you say to a class of undergraduates through a PhD program, I got my degree. You need you 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 need to get yours. And you watch what you watch what those those reviews. You watch what that yeah you they got eat you alive. <laughs> yeah, you will not be reappointed. What is that? in higher ed that there is expertise all over yeah right yes oh well, speaking, speaking 
So excellent, okay. excellent segue, H, because we were talking a little bit before about PhDs and and just like just the level of expertise that people have, right? And so we have some folks that feel as if because they have a PhD or a, a, a doctoral degree or a terminal degree that they are now experts in everything. You are not, sir, ma'am. <laughs> Sit down, right? You are the expert in what you defended your dissertation on, right? Maybe. And and truth be told, you may not even be an expert in that. You may just right. have a lax as the uh, dissertation committee that just lets you get by because of the relationships that you were able to build, building right. back to what relationships that. mean, right? And Say so, that. and so when folks get on these pedestals or whatnot, and they act like, oh, I know everything because I'm Dr. So-and-so, sit your self down somewhere, right? <laughs> Like, like I'm, I'm serious. And Doc, you can speak to this more because you know, you, you, you know, you talk, talk a lot about, you know, if, if folks are, uh, what, what is it called when an honorary doctor? <laughs> Listen, man, I, I, I hold in high regard. Y'all have heard me talk about it. Other people have heard me talk about the great mentorship that I received uh, from David Stovall, who's at UIC. Stovall has this thing where he has publicly said, having a doctoral degree just means you got three funky letters after your name and you paid a lot of money to write a really long paper, right? Like it doesn't necessarily mean that you know everything. It doesn't necessarily mean that you know anything, quite frankly, uh, so <laughs> I ain't say that, I'm, I'm adding that. Uh, and I just think that, um, you know, there are people who got terminal degrees from the block, terminal right. degrees in life. Yes. Uh, my grandmother had a maybe a sixth grade education and she had a terminal degree in life, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, she, I, I remember vividly things she would say, and I'm just like, oh, huh. <laughs> yes. like, yeah, man, let me write that. Let me write that nugget down. It's like the teachers in our building who, uh, let me back up, those educators in our building who ain't got nothing but a high school diploma, and they're the ones that actually can help a principal with multiple degrees actually manage a building and Facts. work with the community 100%. because they have a terminal degree from the community, yep. right? They were awarded their doctoral degree from putting in that work, right? And I, I just think that for me, when... When people finish their degrees, um, is and again, like you, you need to come into these programs as whole people, because if you think these things make you complete, it's a problem, right? And it's the people that uh, where I've lost friends with folks who behave that way, where we'll get into meetings or in public spaces, and they're like, "Oh, well, it's Doctor So and So," and I'm sitting there like. Like, we gonna do that? And it just reminds me of the three friends that I've had in my life that I no longer talk to who uh, joined, I won't mention the organizations, the Greek letter organizations that they joined. They came out on the other side and they treated me a whole different way. And I was like, oh, this is what we gonna do? Like, cause during your process, I was helpful, I was there, I rode with you for that. Like, I will be helpful, right? It's not my jam, but like, I support you. Cause I love you as, as a brother. Right. You know, so, so I just always find like that whole world. Well, I, I'm a, I'm a name this right now. 
uh, it wasn't accused because friendship matters to us. And so I have so many friends that I, that's true. Like right. I will own that it's not they are not cues. Uh, <laughs> I won't get into names because y'all then y'all will accuse me of being I'm not being messy. I'm not naming organizations. I'm not naming my former friends. Yeah. If I saw them on the side of the road, I would still help them. Like I'm not saying that. Yeah. All I'm saying is, is that some people forget who they are. Yeah. And they think they know everything. And uh about everything. Like, yeah. no, like stop. <laughs> like that part. Again, I hold y'all, y'all family, and I've said this publicly, said this to y'all personally. There are things that y'all have done in y'all career that I could do a research project about. But if you dropped me in a school tomorrow, it's like, all right, Simmons, you got to be superintendent of X school, or we need you to replay your experience being an administrator in a school. I'd be like, oh, man, that school is going to fail, number one. (laughs) Because that's just not my, that's not my ministry. Yeah. yeah. Right. Have I done it? Yes. Did I like either of them? No. Like yeah. I and I for me, I know what my uh, limitations are, and I'm humble enough don't. to say, "Go." You want to run a school? Go talk to the only principal that I know of. I said I've said this publicly. Yeah. Who's ever been nominated and won a family community engagement award twice in Give her, her flowers. Listen. Yeah. So so. But so, but so here, here's here's the thing about H and her principalship that we don't really talk about, right? And I think that this kind of uh, it, 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 it reigns true for a lot of successful principals. I think that enough is not being poured into them yeah. in order to sustain them being in the job, right? Yeah. And so there's no practical reason why Heather Harrison is not running a school right now, oh, right? No. And and if um, the right people had poured into her the way that she needed to be poured into, then it would have been more sustainable for her to do that job at a high level than to, like, burn out and look for other things to do that were more sustainable, right? Because, like, it's not easy being a school leader. It's not easy at all. And I think a lot of people get it twisted in terms of, like, underestimating how difficult of a job this is. It's an extremely difficult job. It takes a lot out of you. A lot of times people are putting their health on the line, uh, putting their families on the line um, in terms of just the amount of time that you can spend with your own kids, right? Or with the things that you love doing. It's a lot of things that you have to give up in order to be a good school leader. And it shouldn't have to be that way. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that. It was funny. I was talking to some friends and they were like, oh, well, what did you like? teaching what did you teach like the best and I was thinking I was like you know what I don't I don't want to like toot my own horn right but I taught everything well <laughs> I oh, was like God. good at everything <laughs> no no really I, I I couldn't say like oh I did really great at ELA and like that no I I did great at, at all stuff. what grade did like, you teach H I taught first grade fourth grade fifth grade um sixth grade ELA in Philly um I I was like Really all right, so 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 no, all right, so master the, master teacher H, no, master teacher H, open up the door, let's get down to business. Open up the door. That I was good at that, and so I think, and, and I was also, I think, I was a really good principal too. I think it's <laughs> difficult to not be poured into 
so that you can keep doing the thing when you were good at it too, right? Mm. Like if you, so like imagine if, if we're, you know, Doc always calls us out about the two-time family engagement war. We also had 98% student satisfaction. That meant 98% of kids mm. said they would rather be in school than anywhere else. And we didn't have a beautiful facility. We didn't have a playground. We had five self-contained classrooms and hot and but kids still wanted to be there right and so i think ma'am when we ma'am, have young people no what i'm saying is i hear what you're saying but the choice was leaders, the choice is to be at your school and be alive or be in dc and be dead right but what i'm saying is imagine what would happen if what i'm saying is it's not that we're not just pouring into anybody we're not pouring mm-hmm. into enough to the people who need help who were struggling and who walked out before the school year started. And we're not even pouring into the people who are there busting their tail and willing to sacrifice those things, whose mamas come up to the school to wash little kids' coats, right? Who's got aunts and cousins and friends and neighbors coming on community cleanup day because at the time we didn't have a partner and it was beautification. We wanted to make sure that 30153rd Street looked good for all kids, right? And so I guess what's my point is, we got to figure out how to both pour into the people who are doing well so that they can continue to grow and mentor other people and not just think that pouring into people is something that happens to the ones we want to get rid of and push out. And so back to the original point about this expert thing, we aren't experts in everything. We are experts in our research question, right? In just that. And hopefully you had some kind of finding that was connected to some rigorous, authentic, ethical research that you can make a claim about what you said. And that's right. I said ethical, <laughs> rigorous study, not just something that I randomly wonky went out and asked a question that didn't even connect to the to the tools that I designed, right? They, the, the tools have to answer the question. You can have a really great question and some really good tools, but if the two of them aren't talking to each other, then it doesn't make any sense. We have to figure out a way to help research and researchers, especially those who are studying young people and communities of color, mm-hmm. to go into their studies with the thought of trying to really authentically study and solve a problem that mm-hmm. matters for that community. We don't need folks to be engaged in this work because they're trying to get new titles or because they're trying to publish books or because they're trying to get some kind of dean position. Violence today. are genuinely trying to study a problem in order to develop a solution so that we can be innovative. So that when, I, so when Doc is looking at studies, he can say, yo, I didn't realize that somebody did a study that looked at this particular thing and this particular thing. And look at what they found. How can we take that finding and redesign schools? redesign teacher prep program, Mm -hmm. rewrite curriculum, redesign rubrics to assess teachers and to evaluate them. We have people who are trying to get letters for themselves and not get letters for the field. And it makes me wonder, am I the only person that had to do with chapter five with significance? The significance (laughs) is around. How is your finding significance to the field? Not just to your community. How is this significant to who you found it for and what you intended to study? But how is this going to make something better? Too many folks want to make themselves better, and then they want to point the finger at failing schools and families and communities. Come on with it. And that's not okay. Yeah. Hey, listen. Hey, my my degree belongs to my community, right? Uh, when whenever whenever I defend, like it belongs to my community, and I can't I can't wait in in order to celebrate with the community, uh, based off of my research. I think that you know it's going to yield some some really some really dope things, and I can't, I can't wait to like dive in. 
But Ace, to your point, a lot of people do this these these types of things and whatnot because they have low self esteem and they were bullied in high school. So the same way, <laughs> the, the same way, the same way you see white supremacy show up in in in, oh, yeah. in, in, uh, in, in the police force and in, in teaching, you also see it show up in, in, in PhD programs, right? When oh, folks. Right. When folks go to these schools and they don't they they don't receive or haven't uh obtained their blackness until getting into college, right? It shows up with how they then talk down, uh, how they talk down and, and are condescending to folks or whatever that don't have the same that don't have the same degree levels that they have. And the shit is sure. annoying. It, it is super hmm. annoying. Right. It's offensive. And I'm glad that we are naming it today because like it definitely needs to be spoken spoken about right sure. like, and, that, and that's the hypocrisy right like how dare i put myself as a, a inquirer into a community to mm-hmm. study and find out something that is happening to do it from a way that is not judgmental but from a humble inquiry to genuinely learn about it find something incredible and then keep it to myself because i'm trying mm-hmm. to get rich because i'm trying to get a new deal because i'm trying to ink a new job contract like, what's the point? If you're not going to find something out in order to find how it can be useful and serve other people, that's why we do IRB. That's why there's ProQuest. That's why you publish your studies. Because the goal is to say to somebody else, look what I found. Try this thing. Mm-hmm. Take my study and add a different question. Take my study and now look at young people who are in high school or who are in another community. Look at boys. Look at uh, To see how we can continue to learn. And there are some of us who get the letters because we are genuinely want to be scholars who are continuously learning. And then there are others of us who get the letter because we want to be bumped up on a pay scale to say, look, now I have like a master's plus 15. <laughs> That's terrible. But I, I, yeah, listen, I, 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 I really appreciate you guys like jumping out because like, you know, here, here's the thing. Like you, you have some folks that are in the academy that don't really speak negatively or against the academy. But then you have some folks that are in the academy that want the academy to be better. And so what they do is they hold the academy accountable in terms of like how they need to engage with the community and for the community, right? And so I've always looked at you guys as as those people, right? That wanna that that wanna hold the academy accountable for like how they engage with the community, not in a manner that's condescending, but in a manner that that there's continued learning, right? Because we all should be continuously learning from one another, right? And so just because you don't have a terminal degree doesn't mean that I can't learn from you. It means that I can learn more. I can learn more from you because there's some things that you probably have that I don't have, right? So like if I'm thinking about somebody on the corner, I'm never turning my nose up at somebody that's on on the corner with street credibility or whatever, right? Because at the end of the day, they may have they may have access to 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 a room that I don't have access to. Right. And so because they have access to that room that I don't have access to, I can learn from it. Right. <sighs> but thank you guys for this episode because it was truly needed. Uh, we talked about class. Matter of fact, let's roll into closing thoughts because that's where we need to go. Whenever H's cat comes out, I know it's time for the show to end. That's Shakur. Move Shakur. I got to do something about this. All right. Hey, you start with your closing thought. Um, Let's see. So my closing thought is something we didn't get to today, which is the end of Mental Health Awareness Month. 
Um, and so I would just encourage folks to, um, you know how we often say in February that Black History Month is 365 days, and I don't need those 28 days to like focus on the things. It's an opportunity to be a bit more aware than I was, but I have a commitment um, to my culture, to my community to continuously learn. I would encourage folks to, to think about that for Mental Health Awareness Month. If there was something that you did or tried this month that helped you cope and sustain or improve, if that was a self-care regimen, if that was a new ritual, if that was just taking quiet time to yourself, I would encourage folks to not let um, their, the ending of this month take the focus off of things around mental health and wellness, um, because that should be something we should all be committed to 100% of the time. Agreed. Thanks for naming that. Doc. Uh, I want to shout out um, the big homie, Chad, um, because uh, he was just uh, on, uh, but he is a colleague and someone who is doing super dope research. Um, and he's a leader in the LGBTQ community. Um, and I uh, just want to shout out uh, Pride Month this month. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But just want to really name... Um, that uh, there's a long way to go. And Ray, I want to shout out your quote you had uh, this morning, uh, essentially, love is love, love who you want to love. And uh, I want to quote James Baldwin, um, where, um, you know, uh, he said that if I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you don't see. Um, and I think that it's important in particular with, um, Black folks, for us to name the ways in which we um, don't acknowledge our LGBTQ uh, uh, neighbors, those that operate at the uh, beautiful intersection. Um, and and, and I, I just want to stand in solidarity with the community. Um, I'm working to um, uh, uh, to support uh, Chad and uh, a group of Pride Plus uh, uh, folks um, in my nine to five to elevate uh, the ways in which uh, LGBTQ members of the tech community are marginalized um, in a variety of ways. And so we say underrepresented groups in tech. I want to challenge folks in tech to think about the ways in which you understand marginalization and underrepresentation at the intersection of the ways in which LGBTQ members of our community uh, experience your tech company um, and experience your tech culture. So just want to uh, name that. Um, and I'm just super proud to um, engage with uh, the community in that way. So, yeah, that's dope. So uh, really quickly, I want to, so, so for, for everyone that's out there that's trying to increase uh, teacher diversity, no matter uh, what way in which they're trying to do it, I applaud you, right? And so thank you for your hard work. Uh, we know the statistics, 7% uh, of teachers nationwide identify as Black. Uh, less than 2% of those Black identified teachers are male teachers. And so we know that there's a ton of work that needs to be done. However, my challenge is not to the folks that are putting in the work trying to diversify the field, my challenge is to the teachers unions, right? We all know that behind the scenes, the teachers unions are the things that are, are the people that make things go. Uh, when we look at ed policy writ large uh, from the secretary position or even from the president's position, right? We know that they posture uh, to, 
they posture to the president in order for him to get the Democratic vote. And that's just how it works. And so in order for teacher diversity to really hit home and for it to be uh, on a nationwide platform, the union has to make it their platform. Right. And so if we really want to see teacher diversity, we need to see it coming from these unions and we need to see actionable items to, to, to make teaching more diverse. Right. And that's the only way it's going to work. And, and that's my word on that. And so thank you guys for coming and kick it with us live. We appreciate you. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Three times dope podcast. Peace.